What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? What's stopping you? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. What's stopping you? Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Let me tell you something. We are thankful for you, not only on this Thanksgiving Day, but for every day. And it's this, this program, as you know, is uh, on a Catholic network, but it's meant for non-Catholics to get those questions that you've been you know, thinking about for a long time, possibly, to get those questions answered. So uh, we're going to be uh, dipping into our mailbag today to answer a bunch of these questions. And uh, may I say right here at the top of the show, I am very thankful for our producer, Charles Beery, and Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? You know what? I'm doing very well. Very thankful to be here with you today. I am very thankful that you are here with me today. Tell me why you are thankful to be a Catholic, David. Wow, where to start? I know. So, you know, I, I became a Catholic... 20 years ago because I recognized that it was the only intellectually honest way for me to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Mm, yeah. So ultimately, my devotion to the Catholic faith flows from my devotion to Jesus, my desire to have a relationship with Christ and to follow as his disciple. And my I am persuaded that being a Catholic is the authentic way to do that. And I couldn't be a Christian and follow my conscience if I were not Catholic. Mm. Uh, but uh, but it doesn't just have that instrumental value to me. I mean, Catholicism has presented me with a, a magnificent store of riches and wisdom gathered over 2,000 years of Christian history, integrating faith and reason, uh, uh, beauty and goodness, uh, 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 a, a community, uh, a way of being in the world that is uh, that is unparalleled because it's of divine origin. Absolutely. Here's a, uh, where we're actually going to lead off today with a very timely question that we received. My in-laws are visiting for Thanksgiving this year. I know they will make some sort of a comment about our Catholic faith. My wife's parents are Protestant. How should I respond when this happens? Um, uh, here, have some more turkey. Yeah. Would you like a piece of that pecan pie? I know you would. We've got some stuffing here. You know, I mean, honestly, if it's, don't don't take the bait. Yeah, if 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 they're trying to bait you, if they're trying to provoke you, which they probably are, um, don't 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 rise to the occasion. You know, just uh, you demonstrate the truth of the Catholic faith by the charity that that dwells in your heart. Okay, very good, and uh, I think that's that's probably good advice, not just on Thanksgiving, but really all year round, mm-hmm. isn't it? Absolutely. Very good. Call to communion on this uh, special Thanksgiving Day program. We have an interesting question here uh, from Jay. This is an email that popped in. I hear a lot of people say these these days things like, give yourself some grace, or I'm just going to give that person grace. You know, this doesn't sound right to my ears, knowing that Our Lady is the dispenser of graces. So is this some kind of new jargon, perhaps emptying out the true meaning of grace? for cutting some people some slack? What say you? Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, the, the word grace can mean many different things in the English language and even in, in biblical language as well. Um, the, the, the typical Protestant view of grace is that grace is unmerited favor. 
Hmm. And it, it doesn't extend much more beyond that. Catholics agree with that, but but have a, a much more robust idea of sanctifying grace, that grace is a, a, a divine gift of God's very self, a, a, a participation in the divine nature that comes to us by the Holy Spirit, that transforms our life from the inside. Uh, so we have that very robust idea of grace. And when we talk about, say, the Blessed Virgin Mary or the saints, or for our prayers for that matter, uh, being efficacious in distributing grace, we're, we're, we're teaching, we're saying with the Church, with sacred Scripture, that we can play, that the saints can play an instrumental role in bringing the sinner into that, into that gracious union with God. Uh, and I want to point out that the, the, the Blessed Virgin Mary's preeminent role in the distribution of grace does not... Do, doesn't mean that everyone else is devoid of influence, hmm. right? It's not like she's the only person that can intercede with God or sure. the only way that you can obtain grace. Um, you know, if you can pray for the salvation of your friend, and God can hear your prayers and grant them grace. Now, Mary's also praying for that, and her yes. prayers are more efficacious than yours. But, uh, you know, it's not like Mary does everything and nobody else gets a say. You know, it doesn't work that way. Um, but in terms of, I think this colloquial expression, this idiom that you've encountered, basically means give them a break. Okay. Very good. And uh, Jay, thanks for your email. Grant checks in on Facebook and says, how can I pray to love my neighbor more? I am struggling with this. Yeah, thanks. Uh, For me personally, I benefited greatly once I studied the theological definition of love. Once I actually understood what love meant in Catholic theology, it was much easier to conceptualize how I could go about being loving. Hmm. The problem for many people is that they imagine that love uh, involves sentiment, that I have to have a certain emotional or affective response to someone. And, of course, that's not something you can manufacture. I mean, I, you know, as hard as I try— I don't think I'm ever going to get my wife to like my culinary tastes. Like I could, I could keep putting the the cumin and the chili powder under her nose for the next fifty years, and she's she's I'm I'm not going to get a convert. It ain't going to work, right? you know. And uh, there, there's some things that you might find naturally revolting, um, and your neighbor might be one of them. And that that you know. If you've been offended, uh, if maybe they they behave in an offensive way, there may be something objectionable about your neighbor that you can't bring yourself to like. That's okay. Like you don't have to have a particular kind of effective response in order to love. Think about how you love your own children. Ever been disgusted at your own children or yourself, for that matter? Your mm-hmm. Kids ever do something and you think I'm angry, I'm mad, I'm sad. Uh, you know, I'm not attracted to that behavior. Uh, your love is something entirely beyond that. Your love for the person is your desire that that things go well with them. You, you're benevolent towards them. You want their genuine welfare, not necessarily what they want for themselves if it's unhealthy, but you want their genuine welfare. And you'd like to be in union with them, if possible, in some legitimately good thing. You know, again, when, you're, yeah. when your child comes home and says, hey, dad, I want to play this like satanic slash metal song for you that I'm enamored of. Like yeah. you don't have to like that music, right? That's not some that's not may not be a good to be in union with your kid about, but there's something you can be in union with your kid about. Definitely. Grant, thanks so much for your question via Facebook. We're doing a special mailbag edition of our Thanksgiving program here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Do stay with us. Lots more straight ahead.
And we wish you a happy and blessed Thanksgiving from all of us here at EWTN Radio. Uh, We're doing today a special mailbag edition of Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Uh, David, before we get back to some more of these great questions, do you have any favorite Thanksgiving traditions in your family besides the pecan pie? Well, you know, uh, for us, it's always just been gather as many family as possible and eat together. Hmm. I mean, that, that is the whole show. And, and I, I have always loved Thanksgiving because, quite frankly, Christmas exhausts me. The whole present giving routine, sure. I, I, I find, I mean, I'm not four anymore, so I find it kind of tedious. Um, and I, I like the fact that at Thanksgiving, I have all my family around, which is the most precious thing in the world to me, without, without the extra bother that goes along with the Christmas celebration. And uh, even though I, I don't eat a lot of turkey these days, I've always been a great big fan of Thanksgiving-themed foods. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I, I remember early on when we first came to Birmingham, golly, in the late, sev- uh, late 90s, 1997, we didn't know anybody. Uh, we, we had made a few friends over the, over the year that we had been here in town when uh, Thanksgiving rolled around. So we thought, well, you know, what if we were to invite people over who didn't have anywhere else to go? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, sort of like uh, orphans. And we wound up with a house full of, I think, 30 people. And you know our house. It's not a big house. 30's a lot for that. Yeah. Uh, and, and one person who had a, a Chinese background brought Mongolian beef. And nobody wanted the turkey. <laughs> they all wanted the Mongolian beef. It was a big, big hit. So I uh, love those Thanksgiving traditions. Interesting question here now from Refugio. Is the Assyrian church in obedience with the Pope? Uh, thank you. There is, there is an, uh, there's an Chaldean church that is uh, in union with the Pope, and uh-huh. there's a Chaldean church that's not. Really? So like, like many of the Eastern Rite churches, there's, a, there's an Orthodox branch that's not in communion, and there's a, and there's a branch that is in communion. Okay. Very good. And Refugio, thank you so much for your email. Here's one now from Rob. Dear Dr. David and Tom, I'm a convert to Catholicism. Really enjoy your program. On previous shows, it was indicated heaven doesn't take up physical space. How can this be if the Blessed Virgin Mary was assumed into heaven with a body and Jesus ascended into heaven with a body? Yeah, great question. Don't know the answer. Don't know the answer. That's a, that's that's a puzzler right there. Yeah. Okay. So um, g- God uh, has no body. God is a spirit. Therefore, uh, spatial location, mass, extension, these concepts have no meaning as applied to God. Mm-hmm. And the nature of the beatific vision does not require a physical medium. Right now, it will eventually in the resurrection of the of the body at the end of time. There will be an embodied experience of God, but uh, for the separated souls before the resurrection, their experience of the beatific vision makes use of no material medium. It's an immediate, intuitive knowledge of God's essence within one soul, and that doesn't take place in some place. Yeah. Right. Um, what do you do with the resurrected body of Jesus and the assumed body of Mary? I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. Uh, I think there probably was a naive period of human history before uh, we had a better knowledge of things like astronomy when there was something that the ancients believed in called the Imperium, the Imperium, heaven. Really? Which was, uh, you know, they, they thought that beyond the fixed stars, you know, if you went way out into the solar system, the, the last layer out there was essentially a spatial location where the saints would dwell. Oh. That, that, was a, that was based on a very naive cosmology, and mm. no, no Catholic holds that today. And that wasn't a doctrine. That was just something that people believed based on Aristotle and Ptolemy and the like. Um, 
So that was just, you know, speculation. Yeah. Um, all I can tell you is that we know from the doctrine of the Eucharist that the substance of Christ's body and blood can exist in some fairly unusual modes, right? Yeah. Christ, it substantially can be present in every altar of the world simultaneously, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's a very unusual mode of presence. Now, uh-huh. Christ's mode of presence in glory is, I'm sure, different from the sacramental mode of presence, but I bring that up just to say, you know, it's within the absolute power of God to manifest uh, corporality mm-hmm. in some pretty unusual ways. So I, I don't know that eye has seen nor ear has heard nor could it enter into the heart of man how to answer that question. Rob, thanks so much uh, for your question. It's called a communion on this uh, Thursday, this Thursday, very fabulous Thursday, Thanksgiving that is. Interesting question here from Brendan. Hi, hi Dr. Anders. Wonder if you might be able to help someone who is thinking about leaving the Catholic Church for the Eastern Orthodox faith. He lays out his issue as follows, quote, Aquinas and Augustine state that there is some to whom God grants a predilection of grace, meaning that if they fall away, God will move them through grace by moving their own free will to return to Christ. However, there are some that Aquinas and Augustine called reprobate, reprobate, to whom God does not offer this predilection, and who, if they fall into sin, God does not move their will back to himself. The church views this free will of the elect as free will indeed. I disagree. If God chooses some to move their will by grace to return to him and fails to do so for others, he very plainly loves the first group more, and that's something I just can't get myself to accept. Now, could you be able to help this fellow? Thank you, uh, Brendan. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So the Augustinian Thomistic Doctrine of Predestination is an allowable opinion in Catholic theology. It's not the only one. Okay. It's not the only one. So you're not obligated to hold the Augustinian Thomistic view of, of efficacious grace and divine predestination. You don't have to hold that. Okay. And, and you know, most of my Eastern Catholic friends probably don't. Hmm. And so that's, that's permitted. So, so you know, the, Catholicism has dogmas— there are there are settled truths that are given to us by divine revelation that all Catholics have to hold, but theological systems are not dogmas. Theological systems are the creation of individual Catholic intellectuals who try to arrange the dogmatic teaching and the other data of revelation into a kind of harmonious uh, system that they can grasp rationally and defend. Um, and they're the product, they're speculative products of, of theological imagination. And many of them are quite influential in church history, and many of them to which I subscribe personally. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they don't have the same weight. And so, you know, if you wanted to come at Catholicism from a, say, distinctly Cappadocian, uh, Byzantine perspective and work if in the context of a theological s- system that was very different from Thomism, mm-hmm. that's okay. Like— yeah, do that thing. That's all right. That's fine. I mean, I have I have Eastern Catholic friends. They're Catholics. They're in communion with the Pope, but their their theological orientation is all is all Origen and Basil and Nazianzus and Nyssa and Maximus and Simeon the New Theologian and all the rest of them. I mean, like this is also part of the Catholic patrimony. Uh, even within the West, there's there are different points of view. I mean, Thomists and and uh, and Scotists 
have very different accounts of how all this stuff works out. Uh, Thomists and, and, and Molinists have very different accounts of how all this worked out. I mean, I remember one time I was on the air, somebody asked me a question, a very speculative metaphysical question about God and uh-huh. his relationship to time. And I gave out uh, one uh, one answer, and he said, yeah, well, Father so-and-so who is on EWTN says this other thing, right? <laughs> and I went, oh, how about that? You know, isn't that interesting that Catholic radio hosts don't always have to agree with one another? Then I get off the show, and Father so-and-so gives me a call. Oh. And he says, oh, Anders, I heard you disagreeing with me on the air. I said, oh, well, you know, I, I tend to take the Thomas line on this. And he says, oh, yeah, well, I take the Scotus line on that. And then we had a nice little conversation about our respective points of view and got off the phone in charity, which is what Catholicism allows. Yes. See, if you're, if you're a Protestant and your pastor says or your denomination says, hey, this is a make-or-break issue. You know, you all got to be on board with this thing. Mm. Well, if you're not on board with it, what do you do? You go form another denomination. And that new denomination is based on the idea that, well, this other thing is the thing that everybody has to agree on. Catholicism has got a principled way to differentiate dogma on the one hand from theological speculation on the other. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have to break fellowship with people just because we have different theological systems. The law, all that's allowable within Catholicism. That, that actually was the, the point that helped one friend of mine come to Catholicism. He was really? a Reformed Protestant, and I asked him one time, I said, uh, you're Protestant. How do you know the difference between dogma and opinion? And he went... Huh. And then six months later, he was Catholic. Mm. I really find all that very freeing, don't you? Oh, tremendously. So, you know, the, the, the stereotype from Protestants uh-huh. is that Catholics just slavishly obey the Pope and have no freedom of movement. I found the opposite to be the case. I found that the intellectual freedom I had as a Catholic was far greater than what I had as a fundamentalist or a Presbyterian. Because if you're Presbyterian or you're a fundamentalist Protestant— you, in theory, you believe in the, the inerrancy of Scripture, mm-hmm. which you also hold to be perspicuous, meaning that guided by the Holy Spirit, that anyone can come to a reasonable understanding of the meaning of the Bible, understood as, as the rule of life for the Church. But the, here's the pernicious element of that Protestant doctrine. If you really believe that, once you're persuaded in conscience that Scripture says something, and Scripture is the highest authority in the rule of faith, mm-hmm. then your theological b- opinion becomes dogma to you. Hmm. And, and in trying to come to an understanding of the sacred text, I typically found that the last most persuasive person I heard shaped what I understood to be dogma. Hmm. And, and, you know, if I disagree with you on something, there's no principled way to distinguish between dogma and opinion, between the, the greater matters and the lesser matters. If I think that's what the Word of God says, it's just what it says, period, end of paragraph. Hence, the endless splitting of Protestant denominations. Whereas when I became Catholic, I realized, oh, I'm, a, I'm required to affirm everything that the Catholic Church declares to be revealed by God. But that's a finite number of things. Yes, it is. I'm, I have to believe in the dogmas, but I know what they are. They're delineated. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, there's a huge amount of freedom of movement, which allows me to disagree with other Catholic radio hosts. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Brendan, thanks so much uh, for your email. It's the Thanksgiving edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Here's a question now from Ken. Dr. Anders... I would like to ask if we will be disembodied when we die and become pure spirits, how are we going to experience the joy of the beatific vision and, conversely, the agony of eternal damnation? Is it possible that even without our five senses, we can still use these faculties? Does this also mean that all of our memories as humans are sort of encrypted in our being? Although I understand these are all not impossible with God, I'd still like to hear your elucidation. Yeah, thanks. So the Catholic position is that you're disembodied temporarily. 
Ah. Right, that the natural condition of the human organism is embodied. And so between death and the resurrection of the body, there is this intermediate state when we talk about the separated soul, the soul that's separated from the body. Um, but at the end of time, when Christ comes back, your physical body is raised from the dead and transformed, and so your eternity is an embodied eternity. Uh, but the question you raise is still pertinent. What happens in that intermediate state? What is the experience of the just or the damned, for that matter, between now and the return of Christ? And the Catholic position is that they do have the beatific vision because the beatific vision is not a vision of God with the eye. It's not something that the eye can see or the ear can hear. It's not mm -hmm. a sensible uh, uh, awareness of God. It's an intuitive understanding of God in God's essence in your soul, um, which, of course, is an immaterial reality, an immaterial form. Um, so you don't you don't have a sensorial experience of God uh, in the intermediate state, nor for that matter do you have a, an, a a direct sensorial experience of God after the resurrection, because God can't be sensed in that way because He's not a material object. What you will be able to have with the resurrection of the body is your experience of the material world will be transformed by your intuitive knowledge of God in His essence. So now you know when I look at an apple. Um, I, you know, I can I can see an apple and I can infer from the beauty and design and and and, and being and contingency of the apple the first cause which is God. Um, but something like the beatific vision is hinted at only only barely only intimated. You remember William Blake's poem about uh, seeing eternity in an hour and you know how what you know the the, the poem yeah. I'm talking about yeah, you know, yeah, the, yeah. The, the universe in a grain of sand mm -hmm. and all that sort of business that 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 kind of ecstatic encounter with the material world as a as a token or a participant in something vast and eternal that we have a kind of a vague intimation of in this life in the beatific vision when we get our eyes and ears back excuse me in the resurrection when we get our eyes and ears back i i think that what that means is that as we pass through the material world that god will reconstitute uh -huh. that our experience of every material thing will be ecstatic in that way hmm. you know we'll we'll be like william blake all the time without the weirdness <laughs> I like that. Ken, thanks so much uh, for your call or your question there, uh, rather on email, because we're doing the special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on this Thanksgiving Day on EWTN. As we're going to break, a quick one here from Lydia. Can Dr. Anders recommend a good, accessible Bible companion or detailed explanation resource? Um, shoo. Okay, so how about Bishop Barron's new uh, Word on Fire Bible? Ooh. Yeah, that's that's where I would go for a kind of easy one volume handy dandy thing. Okay, I remember the poem. It's it's auguries of innocence by William Blake. To see a world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower, holding infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. That's the poem. I couldn't think of the line. Well, that's beautiful. Isn't that gorgeous? It, it really is. Yeah. It's it, it's just wonderful. Uh, Lydia, thank you so much. And uh, if you keep listening to EWTN, you can find out about some other good, accessible Bible companions. Uh, check out EWTNRC.com. We always have some great assets there. And I can assure you that uh, we don't sell anything like this unless it's been vetted by our theology department. Those folks work very, very hard to make sure that everything that is uh promoted on EWTN or sold, you know, via religious catalog, is, you know, standing with the church, standing with the Catholic Church. That's what we do. Again, the website for that, EWTNRC.com, EWTNRC.com, and also stay tuned to EWTN throughout the day uh, because we, we talk about things like this 
all the time. In a moment, we're going to come back with lots more of these wonderful mailbag questions that we have cooked up for you on this uh, special Thanksgiving edition of Call to Communion. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Back in a moment with lots more Call to Communion. A happy Thanksgiving from all of us here at EWTN and from this program called Communion with Dr. David Anders. Today we're answering some of your emails that have come in over the past couple of weeks. Got a great one here. We're, we're going to go all the way back to the flood if you're ready for mm. this, David. This is from uh, Robert in Liberty Lake, Washington, who says, I recently had an aha moment about Noah and the great flood. In every flood that we've ever had, uh, rainwater, storm surge, dams breaking, etc. The water would soon drain away, leaving destruction. But it always has a place to lower drain to, such as rivers or oceans, etc. Well, in the case of Noah and his flood, the entire world was flooded. Was that just for the world known to the residents at the time, the Mediterranean basin? Or, as has been often depicted and embraced by Protestants, was the entire world and thus the planet inundated. If the entire planet was inundated, then where would the water finally recede to? If the entire planet was full of water, how would water have anywhere to go? How could Noah's floodwaters recede if the entire planet was filled with water? Again, that's from Robert in Liberty Lake, Washington. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. I uh, I, I think the there's a difficulty with the premise of the question, okay. which is that it takes the Genesis account of Noah's flood as a kind of geological fact, and you're trying to speculate about how you know hydraulics and things like that would function. I, I think there are very few Catholic theologians and biblical interpreters today who would regard the Noah story as a factual account of Earth's geological history. That, mm. That's the way that most Protestant fundamentalists would read the text. It's it's not the way that most Catholics would. And, you know, in the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament, Peter tells us that the Noah story is an allegory for Christian baptism. Uh, of course, in the Noah story, uh, water came and washed away impurity, right, which was the, the wicked, and God saved a few through the ark. And Peter tells us that it's like that, that baptism washes away the impurity of our sin, uh, and and the church fathers understood the ark that saves the soul to be the church. And that way of reading the Old Testament, we, we find that St. Paul does this. He, he allegorizes many of the Old Testament stories. Uh, Jesus himself uh, seems to relativize the literal sense of some of the Old Testament passages, particularly as they concern uh, uh, marital ethics. So, um, yeah, there's a, I, I think that... Um, I don't. I'm not a geologist. I took one course in geology when I was in college. Enjoyed it. So I don't claim to speak uh, with any kind of authority on the science. But my sense is, from having studied this a little bit, that there's just absolutely no historical evidence. There's no geological evidence at all that there was a worldwide deluge, and um, uh, and a lot of reasons to think otherwise. So I, I don't think that's the right way to read the text. Okay. Well, we thank you so much uh, for it, there, Robert. Thank you for checking in from uh, Sacred Heart Radio Territory, Liberty Lake, Washington. We have a rather long email, which we uh, tend to uh, 
gravitate toward programs like today, the mailbag program. Uh, Charles and I kind of sweated over this one, but there's really nothing we can eliminate from it uh, for the sake of brevity. So here it comes. This is from Kathy, who says, Dear Dr. Anders, my daughter told a Protestant woman that the Catholic Church put together the canon of the Bible at the councils of Hippo and Carthage and is responsible for the Bible. And then the Protestant woman responded thusly. Can you help clarify and correct? All right, here it comes. Number one, the Synod of Rome in 382 A.D. was a response to the Eastern Council of Constantinople, and there is no evidence that any discussion of the canon existed there. This claim wasn't even made until the 1970s. If you are referring to the degree of Gelasius, which did include a canonical list, that didn't exist until an entire century later after the deaths of both Damasus and Gelasius. Even so, that canonical list, along with the list produced at Hippo and Carthage, all local, not ecumenical councils, actually contradicts the list produced at the Council of Trent. Even Augustine is quoted at Hippo and Carthage, saying they were not declaring finality on the matter of the canon, rather expressing the opinion of the bishops in that region. The tradition of the church at the time, up until Trent, was to follow the list by Jerome, who translated the Hebrew manuscripts to the Latin Vulgate. All right, here's number two from the New Catholic Encyclopedia. Quote, according to Catholic doctrine, the proximate criterion of the biblical canon is the infallible decision of the church. This decision was not given until rather late in the history of the church at the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent definitively settled the matter of the Old Testament canon. That this had not been done previously is apparent from the uncertainty that persisted up to the time of Trent. Finally, it is according to Catholic scholarship that the issue of the canon wasn't even settled until the mid-16th century. So no, Rome did not give us the Bible, and it's only because of the Protestant Reformation that we have Bibles in our own language today because Rome kept it hidden from the layperson. Rome gets no credit for the canon of Scripture. <laughs> I'm done. Okay, thanks. So there are a lot of conceptual confusions here, all right? Um, one is the idea that unless the Church makes an infallible dogmatic pronouncement that she has no influence, uh, no role to play in the transmission of Christian doctrine. That's just insane. So by your friend's criteria, there was no doctrine of the Trinity until 325. I mean, that's, that's what she's claiming. She's yeah, saying unless, until, yeah. until the Church makes it a... a, 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 a an ecumenical council makes an infallible dogmatic declaration, then we can't speak about there being a Catholic tradition on a particular issue. Hmm. That's just false. That's just false. So a great many Christian doctrines are known by way of sacred tradition without ever having been subject to an ecumenical council. All right? Um, I'll give you an example. It's nothing to do with the canon. Um, in 325, when, when the Church called the Council of Nicaea to define the question of Christ's divinity— it was a very controversial issue. I mean, there were Catholics on either side of the question, some that held to Christ's full divinity, some that held to the Arian point of view, and it nearly tore uh, Christianity and the empire in half. And, of course, that it raged in one form or another for a full century beyond. But there were other doctrines that were never, ever in dispute. Uh, let me give you one. The, the, the legitimacy of prayer to the saints for their intercession— 
that was something that everybody agreed on. And was, there was no need for a council to define it because there was no controversy. And ancient historians like well, historians of the ancient world, like Peter Brown, uh, will tell you that you can track the history of Christianity in the ancient world, its expansion, archaeologically by looking for shrines of the saints and their relics. Hmm. Absolutely ubiquitous. So St. Jerome could write, um, does the bishop of Rome do wrong when he offers the holy sacrifice of the mass over the bones of Peter and Paul? And not the bishop of Rome only, but the bishops of the whole world. That's what we call the, the ordinary universal magisterium of the church. When, when a teaching of the Catholic faith has, is, is handed on um, by sacred tradition, by the universal consent of the church and by its practice, and it may not ever be a matter of controversy, and so it doesn't need to have that kind of dogmatic declaration. It, there, yet there's still a tradition there. Tradition's still authoritative. It's still guiding the, the, the prayer life and the beliefs of the faithful, but it's never been defined ecumenically. So where do you think Protestants got their list of biblical books from? I mean, I grant you they didn't get them from the Council of Trent, to be sure. Where do you think they got them from? Well, where did I get my list from when I was a Protestant? I mean, I was, I was a little Protestant kid growing up. Yeah, yeah. Where did I get my list of biblical books from? Well, approximately from my mother, who handed me a Bible and said, here's the list of biblical books. She sure. didn't use that language, of course, but yeah, she yeah. handed me a book. And actually she did, because I remember my mother's Bible had the Catholic Deuterocanonical texts at the end. And I flipped open her Bible one time and started thumbing through it. And she said, oh, well, don't look at those. Those are the Catholic books. We don't, we don't do those. So I got, my, I got my list approximately from my mother, not from divine revelation. God didn't whisper in my ear. I got it from someone who handed it on to me. All right, where did my mother get her list from? Well, she got it from Protestant tradition, right? I mean, we are Presbyterians, and so the Westminster Confession lists, here are the biblical books. Well, where'd they get their list from? Where'd they get their list from? Well, obviously from the from ecclesiastical use. That's where the list came from. Sure, sure. Right, that's where it came. What do you? What's another word for ecclesiastical use? Tradition. Yeah. Why? Why didn't my Presbyterian church um, concede the canonicity of the Book of First Enoch? Why didn't they? I mean, the the Ethiopians do. Well, it's because the the Latin Church didn't do that. It never cited Enoch in that way. That's what, looking to ecclesiastical use, again, that's what we call tradition. So I, I grant you that, I concede to you that Hippo and Carthage were local councils, to be sure. What of it? They were reflecting, and, and that was their opinion. Based on what? Ecclesiastical use. The fourth century principle for determining canonical canonicity of the scriptures was, what are the churches actually doing? What, what texts are regarded as canonical by the Catholic churches? That's the criterion they went by. That's what you call tradition. All right. Kathy, thanks so much for your uh, email today. It is a special mailbag edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN on this uh, beautiful Thanksgiving Thursday. Don't forget to join us this weekend for The Miracle Hunter, uh, an award-winning program. We're glad to be bringing you every weekend on EWTN. Michael O'Neill is your guy. He is the Miracle Hunter. Check it out Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern and again at 7 p.m. Eastern only on EWTN Radio. Well, we're going to follow up that rather long email with a very short email. This is from Ben in Rapid City who says, What is meant by God's wrath or in 1 Thessalonians 
coming wrath. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so first of all, one thing it does not mean is an emotional response on God's part. Uh, Catholic doctrine on the nature of God is that God is a pure spirit. God doesn't have a body. Uh, God doesn't have any neurotransmitters. Uh, God doesn't have any instincts. Uh, God doesn't have emotional responses the way an animal does to a stimulus. Right. So when we talk about emotions in God, we're using this language figuratively and analogously. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and to say that someone is experiencing God's wrath means that they're experiencing alienation from God, but an alienation that has its roots in their own willful determination to turn away from him. Rather like, uh, you know, someone who complains of, of, uh, of uh, not benefiting from the light of the sun because he insists on standing under the shade. Right? It's not the sun's fault. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, the sun yeah. doesn't change. Um, but in terms of the coming wrath that Paul refers to in the book of First Thessalonians, uh, this would be the doctrine of the punishment of the wicked at the second coming of Christ. Hmm. Okay. Appreciate that. Ben, thank you so much for your email. Here's a thoughtful email from Brian in South Carolina. Dear Dr. Anders, how do I answer Protestant family members who equate my praying the rosary to meaningless repetition that Jesus warned against in Matthew 6, 7. I'm also confused about praying without ceasing, as Paul recommends, versus Jesus' assurance that our Heavenly Father knows what we need. When I, quote, pray without ceasing throughout the day, I find that I'm repeating myself, praying for the, praying for the same family members, friends, and acquaintances, needs and concerns over and over again. In addition, Sometimes when we pray the rosary together before Mass, it seems as though we're racing through it. When I pray the rosary alone at my own pace, I feel better for having done so. Is that feeling enough to assure me that I'm praying appropriately? Thanks, Brian in South Carolina. Yeah, thanks. So uh, the reason that you're praying the rosary is not what Jesus was condemning in Matthew 6. is multiple reasons for that. First of all, what Christ says is, do not be like, don't be like the pagans when you pray, who keep babbling on, thinking they will be heard because of their many words. Mm. So, uh, do you think that you'll be heard because of your many words? If so, Christ condemns that attitude, right? Don't, uh, that, that criteria is never given in Scripture for efficacious prayer. Using many words is not how you get God to answer you. St. James says the prayer of a righteous man avails much, not the prayer of a loquacious man avails much. So don't be like pagans who think they'll be heard because of their many words. That's not why we pray the rosary. Uh, Secondly, Christ did not condemn repetition in prayer. And first of all, sacred scripture enjoins repetitive prayer, commands it. Um, You won't find a more repetitive prayer, I think, than Psalm 136. How many times can you say, his love endures forever, his love endures forever, his love endures forever? This is inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? This is canonical prayer. Our Lord himself commanded repetitive prayer. When asked by his disciples, how should we pray? He said, pray like this. Say these words. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc., etc., etc. So not only did he not forbid uh, uh, repetitive prayer, but he commanded it, and, and Scripture exemplifies it. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with repetition in prayer. There is something wrong with thinking that you'll be heard because of your many words. So what then is the purpose of repetitive prayer in Scripture or in sacred tradition? Um, only one. And that is uh, as an occasion for us to be moved affectively towards God in the holy life. Uh, if it doesn't have that effect in you, then maybe it's time to try a different prayer. 
And uh, most of the great spiritual directors and spiritual writers throughout Catholic history will tell you that in different seasons of your Catholic life, you need different forms of prayer. Hmm. The, the same one will, I mean, maybe not, maybe not everyone, somebody might make do the same prayer every day, but for some people, they need, they need different forms of prayer. And I'm not just talking about changing up the words. I'm talking about an entirely different approach to prayer. Um, your suggestions about frustration with praying without ceasing suggest to me you need a different approach, right? Um, you're, you're thinking that to pray without ceasing means that you have to sort of constantly be dropping verbal bombs on God. And, and you can't think of what to say except to just keep repeating the same intentions over and over again. And that you find frustrating. I would also find that frustrating. Sure. Um, I think it's better to think of pray, prayer without ceasing as the attempt to maintain, uh, even implicitly, a disposition to God and to the life of virtue and to the things of God at all time, regardless of whether or not I'm conscious, regardless of whether or not my lips are moving, regardless of whether or not I have formulated that as a as a verbal request. St. Augustine of Hippo, in his um, uh, his letter to um, Proba, which is a great early treatise on prayer, says that all Christian prayer should take as its guide the Lord's Prayer. And what is the essence of the Lord's Prayer but thy will be done? Yes. Very good. Brian in South Carolina, thanks so much uh, for your email. Interesting question. I've never seen anything like this. This is from Mark, who says, Hi, Dr. Anders. At a couple of parishes here, the confessional is in the chapel, and there's a good view of the morning mass while waiting in line, and it can also be heard through the glass partition. Mass is at 8.30 a.m. I got there around 8.45 a.m. for confession at 9 a.m. The people in line are not at mass, but they are able to witness it. Usually the people in line are just standing there. Yesterday, I noticed a majority of them sort of turning towards the Mass and following along with <clears throat> responsorials, prayers, etc. I was not there for the beginning, but I wasn't sure if I should be following along with everyone else or if nobody should be. If they wanted to go to Mass, they should be in the sanctuary, right? I didn't know if my not following along was an insult to the ongoing Mass or if these folks were out of line, or does it not matter either way? Thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the I appreciate the question. So this is not an entirely unusual practice that you've described. Uh, that they, they they do that at the cathedral in my own home diocese. You'll really? Have, yeah, you'll have confession running while there's mass going on. Um, and uh, and I think your concern about whether you should mentally attend to mass when you're waiting in line is. I mean, honestly, I think this is, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's certainly nothing wrong with attending to Holy Mass whenever yeah, yeah. it's being said. That's fine. Um, but, of course, if you just want to concentrate on your examination of conscience, that's fine, too. Um, you know, uh, so there are, there are some canonical restrictions on the way in which simultaneous sacraments are celebrated. I mean, I don't—you can't have them both in the same rite, you know. I'm not a canon lawyer, and I, I honestly don't know the details there, but I— but the rector of my cathedral is a canon liar. Yes, he, he is. He follows the rules, so yeah. I it's okay. Okay. Very good. And thanks so much uh, for your thoughtful question. Maria sends this email. Is it a correct understanding of the Catholic faith to say that when Jesus suffered and died, that only his human nature suffered and died, not the divine person? Is it a correct understanding of the teaching of the Catechism of the Council of Trent to say that the expression, God died, is not to be understood literally, but rather figuratively. 
Um, yeah, I appreciate the question. Uh, no, no, that's that's incorrect. Actually, the the the, the position that you took as an historian, the idea that I can only predicate things of one or the other nature of Christ, uh, that is Nestorianism. That's mm. what that's what was contended at the Council of Ephesus, and and what the occasion for it was. Um, Nestorius's claim that Mary was not the mother of God, but the mother of Christ. And he, he thought, well, you know, a divine nature can't be born of a human virgin. So he reasoned, well, I can't really say that Mary was the mother of God, because well, how can she give birth to the divine nature? So, But she gave birth to Jesus, so we'll, we'll concede that she's the mother of Jesus or the mother of the Christ. Uh, and the council said, no, that's wrong. That is actually wrong. Mother of God is the appropriate description of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so in the same way, you, would, you can say that God suffered. Um, uh, you can say that uh, God was crucified. Uh, yes, anything that you can ascribe to Jesus, you can ascribe to either one of the natures. And there's a theological principle here called the communicatio idomata, which means the, the, the communication of the natures, right? That what, what, is, what, is a, what is predicated of one is rightly predicated of both, because they're united in the person. Mm. They're united in the person. And, uh, you know, if my... If, uh, if, if, if Christ's human nature, um, well, he's not, he's not really a singular person, right, if you can split him up that way. Mm-hmm. And so we, make, we, we, we predicate things of the person, and that's true of either nature. Okay. Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for your question today. This one is from an anonymous listener in central Illinois listening to Catholic Spirit Radio. Dear Dr. Anders, can it be said that Protestants are subject to tradition or traditions despite their claim to sola scriptura. They read scripture in the vein of Luther or Calvin or Zwingli and not in some abstract Luther or neutral aspiration. They come with givens just like Catholics. Please enlighten me. You are, you are absolutely correct. You are 100% correct. So I grew up in the Presbyterian tradition. Uh, it was governed by the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh-huh. And even though they claimed that they believed that the Bible was the sole rule of faith and the highest authority, uh, no one was going to get ordained into that presbytery uh, unless they subscribed uh, pretty much to the Westminster Confession. And if they took issue with any of the major doctrines of the Westminster Confession, they would they would not have been ordained. Um, and so the way they construed biblical revelation, the way they construed the system of, of Christian doctrine was absolutely uh, conformable to that tradition. And Lutherans the same. Uh, uh, Episcopalians the same, Baptists the same. Uh, so yes, absolutely, Protestants have their traditions. Now, the way they get around the complaint that you've made is they say, yes, but our traditions are biblical. That's that's the position that, well, our, our, all our tradition does, they would claim, is we're just sort of distilling the essence of the biblical revelation. We've articulated what is what is implicit there in the Bible. Yeah, that's what tradition does. Yep, you said it. Just exactly right, right? And um, uh, uh, and so they're they're really in a bind, you know. I this dawned upon me for the first time when I was in graduate school, and I was wrestling with the truth of my Protestantism, and I finally got around to examining the doctrine of sola scriptura, the Bible alone, and I asked myself this question: Why do I believe in the doctrine of sola scriptura as a Protestant? And as soon as I put the question to myself, I realized it was because of my tradition, and that involved me in a pretty profound contradiction. Yeah, that was fairly incoherent. And, uh, and I tried for a long time to get out of that mess. I, I read every Protestant apologist I could find on the doctrine of sola scriptura, 
and tried to find a way to continue to affirm what was the bedrock of my tradition. And, uh, and once I put that critical question to myself, did God actually reveal this doctrine? Uh, I, was, I, was, I was toast. I was done for. I was hopeless as a Protestant at that point. And I, 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 I tried to hang on for a while, but eventually I realized the only way for me to be an intellectually fulfilled Christian is to be a Catholic. Very good. And thanks for your anonymous email. I'm reminded that EWTN is the Global Catholic Network as we're uh, going to this question from Gary and Kyoko in Tokyo, listening in Japan. Dr. Andrews, my wife and I were discussing this question tonight over dinner. What was Jesus doing between the ages of 12 and 30? Why do none of the Gospels cover this period in his life? Is there a reason why this period of his life should be hidden? Thanks from Tokyo. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. So we talk about these as the hidden years of Jesus. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, there is a Catholic saint named Charles de Foucault whose entire spirituality was based on imitating Christ's hidden years. Really? And you're like, how do you imitate hidden years? Yeah. And for him, it meant uh, seek anonymity. Seek anonymity. Uh, okay. Right? okay. And, uh, and since one of the inclinations of the flesh is to seek notoriety and fame— mm. Running in the opposite direction, seeking anonymity, uh, is uh, that seems like a sensible thing to do, a kind of a, a sadical practice. And he did that in imitation of Christ's hidden years, where Christ didn't seek fame or notoriety. Um, and, uh, uh, but as, f- as far as why this is presented this way in the Gospels, the Gospels don't give us the biography of Jesus. That's not really their function. They present him in his office as Messiah. And so their entire interest is in the salvific work of Christ, which really begins at the baptism with John the Baptist. Gary and Kyoko, thanks for listening to us in Tokyo. We really appreciate hearing from you. Hey, Dr. David Anders, may you have a blessed Thanksgiving. Thanks, Tom. You too. And you know, uh, we're going to be bringing you some more mailbag questions on the Friday edition of our program. That'll be uh, tomorrow, same time, right here on EWTN. 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. So if you have written to us recently and you didn't hear today's uh, email or today your email on today's mailbag program, be sure to check us out tomorrow. On behalf of our producer, Charles Beery, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Look forward to talking with you again tomorrow on the Friday edition of Call to Communion. Have a great day, Thanksgiving, and God bless.